Well, we're back. We survived. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, it just went great. And you're going to hear some stories here in just a minute. Um, but we've decided to do our presentation today as a team because every one of us played a really important role, different roles, but important roles in the team during the week. So um, we're kind of just going to go one at a time up here and share pieces of what we saw and what we experienced. And uh, hopefully you'll start to get a flavor for uh, Honduras and the opportunities that are there. So Ronnie Dalchuk's going to go first, and um, then we'll have Doug and Petra and Tim, right? In this area of the country is just the road conditions. Only a third of the roads in Honduras are paved. So, of course, in the rural area where we visited, that means almost none of them were paved. So you can see here kind of what the roads look like. They're made out of dirt, and they're really bumpy. Um, another challenge is just living conditions. This is a house that we visited while we were there. Um, the missionaries were working to give them a toilet and a shower, and they were bringing in clean water from higher up on the mountain. Um, you can see they hang their laundry out to dry. They don't have any electricity either, so no washer, no dryer. Um, this is a picture of their sink, which might be upside down, but um, <laughs> there, there's no plumbing that runs in there, so they carry water up from the stream. So, of course, they face a lot of challenges with um, parasites, bacterial infection, just all the things that you can imagine that come along with lack of clean water. This is a picture of a stove that might have been in their house. This is actually the stove from the school, so it's a much fancier model than the one that those folks had in their house, but um, it's a wood fire. Uh, one of the challenges that they face is that um, forests in Honduras are protected. So even if you own trees on your property, if it's a certain type of tree, you may have to get a permit just to cut it down. So we saw a lot of people carrying firewood on their shoulder. We saw it strapped onto the back of motorcycles, on donkeys, um, people just using any method they could to get it back to their house because, of course, a lot of them don't, <coughs> excuse me, don't have reliable transportation. So that would be another challenge that they face. Um, and like I said before, they don't have electricity in this particular home. So here's a picture of the little girls. You can see how they're kind of playing on the porch. They couldn't play in the house because it would be too dark. But they're playing bingo there. Um, some of the living conditions in the city, obviously, are a little bit more, more modern, more like what we would be used to, but still not the same as the United States. Um, so the missionaries, uh, the team that we went to visit was called Sours for Pastors. And their primary mission is to empower the local pastors. So the pastors, the Honduran pastors, are actually the ones that do the evangelism. They're the ones that raise up the leaders. They're the ones that plant the churches. But the Sowers family, their team, um, works to support that. So these are some of the projects that they have going on. They have a Bible bookstore where they can sell Bibles at a discounted rate. So a Bible might cost $80 if the pastor went to buy it at the city uh, bookstore, but the Sowers can sell it maybe for 20 bucks which still might be a week's wage, but better than $80. Um, transportation, they try to help the pastors get a motorcycle or a horse. Uh, rather than them walking from village to village to do their ministry, they could have a motorcycle. They work with um, medical teams from the United States, dental teams. They provide deworming medication and supplemental vitamins. Uh, construction projects, so the patriarch of the family was a home builder in the United States, so he has a lot of skills in that area, and they do bridge building projects um, where they work alongside the government to build bridges. They've built churches, houses, um, water projects like the one I told you about earlier. They also run a program called Gifts for Gracias, 
where they provide shoebox-style gifts for pastors and their wives and children. So it might include things like a backpack, a belt, a hat, toiletries. Um, and then in a little bit, Doug will tell you about the pastor training schools, and Petra's going to talk about the feeding centers, and Tim is going to talk about the coffee growing that they do and how they're going to use that to sustain their ministry. So this is Alan Sowers. He's the father of the family. He came to Honduras about 15 years ago. Hurricane Mitch had wiped out a bunch of houses on the islands off the coast, and he came down there to help build houses. They lived there for about five years, and then they moved up into the state of Lempira in the Western Mountains. And this is where they're living now. It's actually a warehouse that they built uh, while they are waiting to build a house. So they, they live here. You can see on the left side of the picture, that's Ben. He's a son that they adopted. He's 13 years old now, and he's Honduran. So they now have six children. Their oldest son is Russell. Uh, he's also part of the, the missionary team. He became a missionary in 2008. He's been living there since he was 11 years old. So do we have any 11-year-olds in the audience? You can imagine moving to Honduras with your family. Um, so he's obviously very comfortable with the language and the culture. Uh, he married a Honduran lady that he met at church. Her name is Iris, and we got to meet her while we were there. And they have a son, and his name is Russellito, Russell Jr. They call him RJ. Um, so he's obviously very comfortable there and connected to the people. He also has a good mind for numbers. He has a great memory for names. He can remember the pastors and the projects that they're working on, obviously his construction skill, and he's good at forming contacts and calling on um, connections from the local people, like working through the police station or the hospital to try to push a project through. And he's also really good at problem solving and inventive about ways to stretch a dollar, as you can imagine a missionary might be. This is a picture of their house. You can see it's a little bit fancier than the one we saw out in the country, but they do live in a small town. And this is what it looks like on the inside. Back in the back is their kitchen, and toward the front is their living area. And if you were to turn around, you would see their Bible bookstore that they keep right there in their house. They also keep um, the food in their house. This is actually part of the shipment that we here at Life Community helped raise funds for to ship down there. They keep it in one of their bedrooms so they can kind of protect against theft and also to keep bugs and rodents out of it. Um, so they keep it there. A missionary that recently joined their team is Clay Powell, and he has training in theology and agriculture. He moved to Honduras about five years ago, and while he was there, he also met his wife, Cynthia, also a Honduran native, and um, they're about to have their first son in a few weeks. So they're facing some challenges. Some of their needs are currently, uh, Clay has no steady financial support. Russell and Alan, they've been in country for a while, and they have um, means of raising money for themselves. But Clay currently is without support since he's new to the team. Um, also, his wife was a city girl in Honduras, and now they've moved out to this rural area. She's about to have a baby. So if you think about it this week, I, I would ask that you pray for them because she's in an uncomfortable situation. And one of their main needs, um, personal needs, is transportation. They have rugged, durable vehicles, but obviously those kinds of vehicles are very expensive to begin with. And also in Honduras, the automobiles don't depreciate the same way they do in the United States. So even buying an older vehicle would still cost a lot of money. And then they pour a lot of money into maintenance also. You saw what the roads looked like 
we felt what the roads look like. <laughs> it's really hard on the vehicles. So um, this is actually them on the way back to the airport when they were dropping us off. The brakes were smoking, so <laughs> we had to stop for some roadside repairs. But they're obviously very um, skilled. I mean, God shaped them in such a way that they're good at what they do, and they fit right in down there. Um, they're, each of them are one-vehicle families. So... Yeah, when they're at work, the wives are home with no transportation. So that's a huge need that we saw while we were down there. Um, I hope that you get an idea that there are challenges in this area, but there's a huge opportunity, I think, for Life Community to make a difference for the kingdom. So with that, I'll hand it on to Doug. Okay. I'm going to talk about um, one of the uh, initiatives that they they support, which is the pastor uh, training school, um, but to start it off, I want this is a picture uh, again of what, of all of Western Honduras of what it looks like. You'll be you'll be driving to one town and you'll see and they'll be like, hey, that's the road that we're going to go up to the next city, and it takes you two hours to get there. Uh, so those are the challenges that the that the pastors face um, is moving smoothly from one village to the next. So the, the mission, as the powers stated, the powers, the Sowers stated, is this: We believe God, that God has placed us here to be a blessing and a resource to the Honduran Christians who are going about the work of evangelism in this part of Honduras. Uh, throughout the various ways we minister to them, we strive to help the pastors be more effective in this work and in the relative in the related works of planting church and discipling new believers. And that's pretty much the foundation of what they do. Is, pat, is partner with the, the local pastors. Um, so the indigenous people are ministered by their, their own culture, their own language, and not us folk. So they jumped into the pastor training school. Uh, the, the pastors there are, are coffee pickers. They're machete choppers. I don't know what they're chopping, but they use the machetes to chop. Um, and that's how, that's how they earn, earn a living. And then they are also pastors of, of a, small, a small community of, of believers. Um, so so they, they try to pour in their, their, their education, I think what averages sixth grade education. Um, and then at, when they reach sixth grade, they have to decide, am I going to uh, go, continue in school and be a, uh, a mouth or, or, or a, a belly that doesn't provide for the family, or are they going to go off to the fields and, and work and provide an income? So the level of education isn't, isn't there. So the pastor training, when they become believers, um, they, they may not know how to read very well. And so it's kind of hard to study the Bible when you, you can't read very well in other, in other books. So this is what they said on their website. You can visit it, soursforpastors.com or org. Um, when we arrived in Gracias in 2005, very few pastors had Bible training. Now we run a, a three-year Bible training program. Currently, approximately 80 pastors and future pastors participate in the school uh, in the school sessions, which run for three days a month for nine months of the year. To date, they've graduated 80 pastors. And when you think about it, I think when we started this um, this mission, you know, we learned about the Sours. They're like, we partner with a thousand pastors, and we're like, wow, that's that's a lot of pastors. But only 80 of them have been, uh, have been graduated through some sort of school. So there is a, a huge need there. Here's a picture of some of the graduates. 
kind of fuzzy picture, but it is a picture of them. They're very proud of, of the commitment that they make. It's a sacrifice for pastors to come in uh, and, and receive this training. They've got to uh, sacrifice their time, their days out in the field working, so it's, it, it is costly. So I want to introduce you. We were able to participate in the San Juan Pastors Association, attend one of their meetings, and thanks to Scott for making it less awkward. But, um, but here's a, an aerial view of San Juan. Uh, it's, it's one of uh, a larger city in western Honduras, and it's about 1,600 people. Uh, it's shaped, as you can see, it's kind of rugged. And, uh, and, and the, out, the outskirts of that is, becomes more rugged. And I'll get into that impact here in a little bit. But here's the, uh, the pastor association, all of the people that we met with. There are uh, 12 pastors representing nine communities, San Juan, and then eight communities in the surrounding area. In this pastor association, San Juan is the largest in the town, 1,600. Uh, four of the pastors are from San Juan, and there's five denominations represented. The cool part about it was they're an interdenominational uh, association. So you get a lot of different ideas. Um, they talk about uh, strategy, but they really do encourage one another and, and look for ways to, to build each other up instead of getting in each other's way, which is, which is really awesome. And we were really blessed to see um, their relationship with each other. So uh, it was cool. And currently, in the area of San Juan, there are 8 to 10 communities nearby, which may be 45 minutes to an hour away, but, but nearby that, uh, that do not have a Christian presence. Uh, and that was one thing that really kind of touched our hearts, um, is, is, hey, how are you reaching uh, those communities? What, what do you need? And uh, so this is what we learned from that meeting. There is a dire need for both training for pastors and uh, leadership development within these communities. Um, the pastors, what they need, the pastor training, they need theology. Uh, they need to, to learn even some of the basics of theology. Uh, they need uh, small group development, how, how to uh, create transformative small groups, and very much like what we have here at LCC, cell groups that... Um, are a place of transformation. Uh, they, they need to learn how to better equip leaders. One of the things that they struggled with was raising up leaders to be able to go uh, into the next community, people that are, are, are committed to be able to do that. And they also need, wanted some music training as well. In the leadership development part of it, one of the struggles that the pastors were saying is there's a lack of commitment to leadership. So for a pastor, for someone to, to commit to being a pastor in this area, they've got to be willing to both take on a full-time job chopping and macheting and picking and also to learning how to shepherd a flock, to learn how to um, uh, further their knowledge of, of uh, the Bible, of Christian living. And so it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge of commitment. Uh, they also need general education, how to read and write. Um, better uh, general theology and also evangelism within um, the pastor training school. So that's what we learned in San Juan. It was, uh, it was a good experience. And now I want to introduce you to Pastor Arturo Perdomo. This was a really cool guy. He is a pastor in uh, Gracias. And here's some more pictures of, of him. This is the Sunday, um, 
the Sunday worship we attended on at his church on Sunday, and there's a little picture outside of his church. Uh, pastor Arturo has been a pastor since 1982. Uh, he is a regional leader for his denomination with uh, uh, 50, it's supposed to say 54, not 54, 54, 54 pastors directly under his supervision. Uh, three zone pastors report to him, so he's, he's kind of larger over his denomination than he's got three zone pastors in the area that report to him, and then uh, there's 12 supervisors within the region. So that's kind of how it's structured. And how that came about was 35 years ago, he was telling us that um, uh, villagers would just come to him and his, and his group and say, hey, we want to be baptized and we want to, uh, to learn from you. So he baptized them, and out of that, uh, 80 new churches were planted. Um, and so he and his pastors also run a pastor training course, which they also uh, would like some, some partnership in. So those are the two, the two areas of pastor training that we, uh, we saw, San Juan and uh, Pastor Arturo. So to recap, the towns and villages of western Honduras are small and difficult to get to, and they're scattered between mountains, big mountains. Uh, the leaders sacrifice much, mostly working two jobs while traveling uh, long distance to be with their people. And uh, there's not enough uh, ready now and committed leaders to send into the surrounding communities. So that's the challenges that they face, and uh, uh, that's the pastor training school. So with that. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the feeding centers that we visited. We visited three of them while they were there, and uh, those were really near and dear to my heart and kind of the highlight of my trip um, because they they focus on children, and that's that's a soft spot for me. Um, so to begin with, the food that we help send down and that other churches help send down in the containers need to be stored somewhere. And I did not realize that Ronnie would use a similar picture. Um, but this is uh, in Russell's house. So it has to be stored somewhere before it's transported elsewhere. Um, and they can store about, I think he said, almost half of a shipping container in his house. Um, and then from there, they'll transport it to a feeding center. So you can see we're helping load the back of uh, Alan's pickup truck to distribute some of the food. Um, once it gets to the feeding center, it has to be prepared. So um, kind of like what Ronnie touched on earlier, they don't have nice big electric or gas you know, stoves and ovens. So it is, um, they have to build a fire. And so outside one of the feeding centers, um, there's just this huge bowl um, that they were cooking some rice, some kind of soup thing in. Um, and then inside the school is kind of like a smaller um, fire that they'll um, have smaller cookware on. Um, this man in the red hat that you see, um, he's one of the pastors uh, at one of the feeding centers that we visited. And he will come in and help. He's helping prepare the food. So he does this five days a week in addition to his other pastoral duties. Um, so that probably, I mean, that probably takes a lot of balancing on his part. Um, so once the food is prepared, um, they serve it up to the kids. So this is just a little bit of information on one of the feeding centers we visited. Um, so they have all the kids sitting down. 
Uh, and there's, there was quite a few more people all around the perimeter. So like the older sisters or the young mothers um, would come. And so the children would all sit up front. Um, they would be entertained by uh, the lady that is standing up there while they're waiting for their food. So she leads them like in songs and little motions to the songs that they all laughed at when I tried to do. Um, but, like, think of songs, like, that you would sing in Sunday school when you were little, like, Father Abraham or, like, about Zacchaeus. So it was those kinds of songs. It was just to keep the children distracted while they know food is being cooked, like, right beside them. Um, and so, like it says here, kids will walk sometimes, like, over a mile to get a bowl of food, like what we ate on Sunday. And so we even discussed that, like, they're coming to get this food, and they get, like, one serving of it. And some of them are coming from so far, like, is it, is it even worth walking that far? They think it's worth walking that far to get that food. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, there will be prayer as well before they eat. Um, the other two feeding centers we visited were in public schools. So say the pastor doesn't have the space to accommodate a feeding center, um, or maybe he doesn't have enough help or something like that, he may be able to team up with a local public school and they will feed the school children there. Um, and so what's really cool about that is, um, first of all, they reach uh, quite a few students. So I think the ones that we went to fed like over 250 students a day on average. Um, but what the pastor does is, in addition to helping set up uh, and prepare the food, he will read scripture, and he'll give like a devotional or a short story, um, and then he'll pray over the food before the kids um, can eat it. So, um, yeah, that, that was a really candid picture that Ronnie took of that little girl. I, I enjoyed that. Um, the feeding centers don't just feed them physically, right? They feed, they feed the kids spiritually. Um, I think this is a very important resource that we saw, um, a physical resource of, you know, just basic food, but also nutrition. So like the rice, like the food that we send down is fortified with vitamins and minerals that they may not be getting in their um, diet at home necessarily. Um, it's also, you know, think about if, if the parents don't have to pack a lunch to send with the kids to school every day, um, the kids aren't going hungry and then that maybe saves the family a little bit of, of money if they're not having to prepare that meal and, and give it uh, to their kids as they go. Um, but it also feeds them spiritually because every time they're eating one of these meals at a feeding center at their school, they're also learning about Jesus. And these, these kids may or may not go to church. Their parents may or may not be Christians. Um, they may have no other godly influence in their lives other than what they hear when they go to eat this meal. Um, so I think, you know, from that perspective, it's a very important uh, resource and one that I'm very happy that the Sours are involved in. Um, and also, I just like being around little kids. So I'm going to hand it off to Tim, and he's going to tell you about coffee. Morning. I want to start out. I want to. I want to tell you how honored I was to be a part of this trip. Um, God had put on my heart some time ago um, that I needed to, 
to try another mission after my mission to Africa. I had talked to my disciple partner about it, and um, this trip just kind of fell on my lap, and so I feel like it was a God thing. Uh, I want to thank you also uh, for the prayers uh, and the support that you gave this team. Your prayers were definitely felt. Um, During the trip, we all got to experience something I'm going to call Lempira's Revenge, and uh, your prayers definitely carried us through the tough times. Uh, I'm going to share with you today a subject that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but it's money. Uh, However, the Sowers have kind of come up with a unique opportunity uh, to support their mission, uh, and I felt strongly about it being a businessman, um, and I thought that it would be a good opportunity for you to see a little bit different side of their ministry. Um, As Ronnie shared, um, Alan works construction before he moved to Honduras. Um, Their ministry is currently supported uh, in various different ways, Um, and Alan uh, is the main breadwinner for the, the, the family. When they came, it was just Alan and his family. Now it's Alan's family, Russell's family, and recently they've added Clay as well. Alan is fortunate um, for the personal expenses that they have in Honduras. Uh, he's able to return to the United States for about 11 or 12 weeks a year and work construction. He builds docks along the East Coast and in Florida. He, uh, he also has a skill of custom Uh, staircase railings that he's done very well with. So what he'll do is he'll return to the United States. He's leaving uh, in August to come back to the United States, and he'll be here until about November. Uh, We're hoping that he can come here and speak. Um, And what he does is during the day, he does construction projects. Uh, In the evenings, he meets with businesses and organizations that he's partnered with and churches, uh, and he helps raise support. So when it comes to their personal uh, living expenses, uh, they, they, Alan has always tried to be what he called a tent maker, and um, be able to provide uh, personal expense coverage uh, without using ministry money. So he did this um, through his construction. Russell and Clay, on the other hand, uh, don't have those skills or that network. Uh, Russell has been in country since he was 10, um, and so what they're currently doing is partnering with Foundation for Missions, and they're trying to raise support uh, through their website, through family, friends, uh, begging and borrowing. Um, The ministry itself, uh, the funds that run the ministry, is uh, basically supported through churches, businesses, and humanitarian organizations. And to give you a little bit of perspective, uh, I talked to Alan about the money involved. Um, the church oper- or the ministry operates on about $100,000 cash per year. Um, let me put into perspective, in Honduras, that's a lot of money. Uh, the average laborer will make 4 to $8 a day, um, so $100,000 can go a long way. He also receives about $280,000 in penny a meal support. So we raised the money to ship the container um, to Honduras, and that was around four dollars to $5,000. Um, but the actual container of food itself is valued at around $70,000, uh, which a humanitarian organization donates. Um, so he receives about $280,000 in meal support. And then he shared with me that he receives about $70,000 in other stuff. Uh, could be clothes, backpacks, soccer balls, um, items that they need for roofing. Um, so to just give you a little bit of, of a flare, that's $450,000 of impact that this one family has been able to bring to Honduras um, in a very poor country. Um, and so uh, what they um, need to do is maintain that. 
They've grown quite a large ministry. We've, we've only got time to talk to you about a few things today. I've recapped what uh, Ronnie discussed behind me, and even this list uh, does not fully entail everything that they do in Honduras. Um, it boggled my mind as a business leader to hear what they get involved in. I would spend a lot of time in a vehicle with Alan, and he would just keep telling me about all these different things, or we'd drive down the street, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, we do that too. Um, it was amazing what they manage as a family. Um, and the great thing about what they do there is he told a lot of stories about church missions that come in and what he called the gringos, which we got used to hearing. Uh, the gringos come in, drop a lot of cash, build a lot of stuff, and then after two or three years they go away, and it isn't sustainable because the locals don't know what to do with it. Um, and he, he pointed out, and I'm not going to bash, but he pointed out the Catholic Church. We would drive by some amazing Catholic Church buildings in the area, um, and he said, you know what? The priest shows up about once every two months. The pastors we support are in their community every day. And, of course, as soon as he said that, I thought about LCC. But what's great about it is he requires sweat equity, or what he called he wants some skin in the game. So as we talk about horses, motorcycles, the food, the local villagers and the pastors have to have some sort of sweat equity. Um, if they're going to build a church, uh, he said in the early days he would give them $1,000 to help build the church, and the church would get half built, and it would sit there. So now if they need financial support for the church, they build the church, and when they get to the roof, he'll help them with the roof. Because if they don't have financial sustainability to get to the roof point, they're probably never going to finish the church. So then even if the roof is, uh, let's say, 2500 to $3,000, the sours will only support with around 1000 1250 and then some manpower because he wants them to have sweat in the game. With all this said, their, fine, their goal, you know, Alan's getting older. He's not going to be able to keep coming to the U.S. He's not going to um, be able to do hard labor and, and building uh, to support their mission. And so what he wants to do is he wants to reduce their dependence on outside financial support. He said the recession in 2009 was very difficult. Step one is take care of their personal living expenses. To give you a little bit of a perspective, Russell's family, which is a family of three, uh, to live a basic life in Honduras, he needs ten dollars to $15,000 a year. Same thing for Clay. Alan's family is a little bit larger. Um, he needs maybe about 20000 So we're talking about $50,000 supporting three full households, um, and that's not a lot of money in U.S. standards. But he needs to make sure that they can raise that. And so what he wants to do is he wants to uh, not necessarily focus on beg, borrow, and stealing, um, but he wants to uh, grow coffee. Um, the natural resources in the area make coffee a, a very common-sense cash crop. Um, and so what they want to do is they want to grow coffee, and then they want to sell the undried, unroasted coffee to a local co-op that will then take care of its needs and export it. Um, Honduras has become the seventh largest uh, coffee grower in the world, and it uh, with their improved infrastructure and adding of roads in western Honduras, the um, industry has really grown in that area. The great thing about it is it's not that expensive to get started. It costs about $2,500 uh, to put an acre of coffee in, and the uh, return on that investment can be great. So how can they only... Uh, how can it only cost $2,500 to put an acre of coffee? And I'm not going to go through this list, but if you look at this list, it's pretty cheap. Um, they can get 2,000 coffee plants uh, for 300 bucks. Uh, we saw them. They buy kind of like seedlings. They plant them in what they call a nursery, which is just an open area of land with a grass kind of roof over it to shade them. 
They grow them for a little while, and then they transfer them into the ground, where then they mature. Um, and so the plants have to mature for two or three years. So, for example, they plant them in the ground. That first year, they don't make any money off of them. The second year, they don't make any money off of them. The third year, they get about 50% of the crop value. The fourth year, three-quarters. And then by the fifth year, they can go into full harvest. Um, they can benefit about $1,750 an acre. Um, so if you do the math, it takes about 17 months um, of a full harvest to pay for the investment. Um, and they can maximize their profits at that point. They currently have 21 acres um, under development, which we got to see. Um, and if, So if you do the math, uh, when they get to full harvest... $1,750 times 21 acres is $36,750 a year. That's $36,750 that they don't have to raise. They don't have to depend on a good economy in the United States, and the, the ministry becomes, starts to become self-sufficient. Um, they want to branch out. They've got a lot more land they can develop. And so what, one of the ministries that they're trying to start uh, or support ministries is to, to grow more coffee. Uh, one other thing that they'd like to do is find a partner in the United States or multiple partners in the United States that might want to buy their coffee, either sell the bags of coffee itself or sell the coffee product, uh, and then return a large part of those profits back to them to also support their ministry. So why plant coffee in Honduras? Just to recap, there's a great return on annual benefit to the ministry. It reduces their dependence on raising support for personal expenses. Um, and he, Alan made a joke about this, but it, it struck me. Um, he said, some people just don't want to give money forever. Uh, some people don't want you to come with your hand out on a regular basis and say, hey, I need another 100 bucks. I need another 100 bucks. Um, or monthly giving. He said, there's folks out there that just want to give you some money and want you to go away. Um, and so he said, this is a great opportunity. He goes, I have found these people. And I say, okay, give me $2,500 and I'll never bother you again. And he goes, one of the guys actually accidentally did bother him again. And he said, Hey man, you said you wouldn't come back. And he's like, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but he, he thought that this was another opportunity for folks that, that just wanted kind of that one time gift. Um, and so they can grow each acre one gift at a time. Um, so what is the end goal? They want to become self-sufficient. Step one is try to pay for their personal expenses through this coffee so, they, so that maybe money that I would give to support their personal expenses could then be used in a ministry. Long-term, they would love to support their current ministry, that $100,000 uh, through coffee crops, and then anything that they receive after that could simply grow their ministry or simply maybe do some special projects or some new things. Now Scott's going to come up and talk about Honduras some more. And what they did. You know, um, if, you've never, if you've never walked into a, a totally cross-cultural environment where nobody speaks your language, you don't speak their language, it's, you can walk into that and it's almost like somebody throws a wet blanket over you and you just want to go hide because um, you can't communicate. And um, the first time that that happened for us, on that first Saturday we were there, these four people jumped right in. Um, now, you know, it was kids. We were at one of the feeding centers, so that kids are a little easier to approach, but still. They could have held back and been wallflowers, um, but they didn't. They jumped right in, and uh, so it was, just, it was great to lead you guys uh, on that team. So uh, 
I, um, I want to uh, bring, I guess, a little bit of biblical flavor um, to our trip and what we learned and, and some of the things we discussed. And uh, one of the questions that, that, uh, that came up pretty often, actually, was why Honduras? Um, and specifically, why should we send any resources, time, money, people to a faraway place like this? I mean, after all, isn't there enough need right here around us, friends, neighbors, our city? Why should we put it, be putting any resources out there? And um, so we discussed that question actually several times as a team. We also discussed that with the missionaries, and I want to kind of let you in on, on some of that conversation. Now, one answer to the question is, well, yeah, there is a lot of deed. Right here in our communities, our neighborhood, um, if you haven't realized it yet, we don't live in a Christian nation anymore. Um, Christians now are in the clear minority in the United States as far as what characterizes the, the thoughts and morals of our culture. Um, so certainly our country and our city and our neighborhoods need gospel-centered people to point us back to Christ. Um, but it was really interesting to listen to the missionaries uh, wrestle with this question and answer this question as we talked. And um, One of them actually asked, asked the question back. He said, well, he said, is the life of a Honduran who doesn't know Jesus any more important than the life of an American who doesn't know Jesus? Now, that's a really blunt answer, right? Um, but I think it's true, and I think it's valid. Um, there was uh, one of the other missionaries, he had maybe a little softer answer, a little broader answer that I thought was just as, as effective. He said, you know, the work that we're doing here in Honduras is no different than the work that uh, you guys are doing back in your home, in your neighborhood, in your culture. Um, God has simply given me the grace to live this out in a culture that's not my own. He's given you the grace to live it out in a culture that is your own. And then he asks the question, he says, are you? Are you? Are we being missionaries right where we live? Um, And again, I thought that was a really valid uh, answer to this question. Now, this this whole question, why, why should we send any resources, time, money, people to these faraway places when there's so many needs right here at home? That question became very personal to me about 12 years ago. Um, Some of you know that I served as a missionary in Romania from 2006 to 2010, and uh, one of the scripture verses that um, pointed me in that direction um, was Isaiah 49.6. And I'm going to have it come up on the screen there, and And uh, I just want to set the context for it just a little bit so you understand what Isaiah was dealing with. He was, this was in, Isaiah lived in a time when probably it was the most difficult for the people of God, the people of Israel. Um, And he was one of the prophets that was assigned the task to uh, give the bad news, so to speak, to tell the people of God what exactly what God was doing and how he was responding to their, to their actions and choices. And, and, um, so they had the Israel, they'd been disobedient for a long time, and so God finally just moved his hand of blessing, kind of took his hand of blessing off of them, 
and allowed them to be uh, defeated and sent into exile to the Babylonians. And to give you a little comparison of what that, that might be like, just try to imagine that ISIS and the Taliban get together and they send their little terrorist gangs to Columbus, Ohio. And they burn down the city and they, they kill and maim anybody that gets in their way. And then they ship the rest of us back to Iraq to live as POWs. That's where the people of Israel were. That's where the people, Isaiah, or Isaiah's people were. And the situation looked pretty bleak. But in chapter 49, we find God beginning to change the message of despair. You see, Isaiah, was, he was fortunate in one respect. He lived, yes, when, during a very difficult time for his people, but he also lived at a time when God began to restore their hope and give them something to look forward to. He began to say to them things like, these are my paraphrases, but I'm going to put my hand of blessing on you again. Um, you're going to possess your homeland again. You're going to be free of your captivity to the Babylonians. You will live freely again as my people. And in verse 5 of chapter 49, it's interesting we get a little glimpse into, into Isaiah and how he viewed himself. He understood that, he, that his purpose in life was to participate in that. Um, he said, God formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. You see, Isaiah believed that his purpose and calling in life was focused on bringing his own Jewish people back to a relationship with God. Isaiah was focused on people like himself. And then we get to verse 6. And Father God takes Isaiah in a totally different direction. When he says this, he says, "It's, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also, also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And you see, just like that, God has redirected Isaiah's focus um, away from the chosen people of Israel. He essentially says to, to Isaiah, you're thinking too small. You see, they're thinking about restoring the tribes of Jacob. God is thinking about taking the light to the Gentiles. They're thinking about bringing Israel back to their promised land. God is thinking about bringing salvation to every person on earth. God's thinking, they're thinking about how can God benefit people like me? God is thinking about people like them, yes, but also people not like them and people who live very far from them. And so it was in that context that 12 years ago, I sensed God say to me, Scott, I, I have more for you to do than what you're doing today. You see, I was living happily, um, serving happily as the founding pastor of a church here in Hilliard, and um, it was a you know, healthy congregation, growing congregation. It was mostly people like me and like my family. Um, but God was telling me that people like me was too small a thing, and that He wanted me to consider reaching people not like me 
For me, it was Romania. It's interesting that Paul and Barnabas, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, they actually end up quoting this verse um, from Isaiah 49. Um, when they're, they're in a Jewish city, we're trying to reach the Jewish people, and the Jewish leaders start giving them pushback, and finally they just kind of uh, knock the dust off their hands and feet, and, and they quote this verse and said, we're, God has called us to reach the Gentiles. See you later. Um, that was extra. You don't have to pay extra for that. Um, um, but you know, the book of Isaiah is not the only place that we see God's heart for the world, um, for all people. One of the earliest places we see it is Genesis 12 in the calling of Abram, who would later be called Abraham, um, where it says, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, according to the words of God in this calling to Abraham, you look at it yourself. Why was God creating this new nation of people, this new chosen people? Why was he creating it? What was the result that he, saw, he was seeing to come from this new nation, the chosen people? So that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, over and again, God's people have forgotten the reason uh, for which they were chosen. Israel was not raised up and chosen by God so that they could feel special about themselves. God raised them up in order to be a blessing to all peoples of all nations, both people like them and people not like them. And the same is true for those of us as Christ followers today. You know, I don't know about you, actually I do know about you because you have the same human nature I do. I forget. We all have this tendency to forget. And so we begin to bring the experience of Christianity and our relationship with Jesus and it becomes centered back here. It's about me. It's about taking care of me. It's about taking care of the people who are close to me and who are like me. But the saving work of Jesus in our lives, in your life, in my life, was never just about you, just about me, just about people like us. You see, we love and serve the same God that Abraham did. And God's, we serve the same God that the chosen people of Israel served. And I can tell you this, God's heart for all people of all nations, has never changed. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You know, that's uh, why Jesus himself said things like this, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus said it again in in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus wasn't saying anything new. 
He was simply restating what what God had said to Abram all those thousands of years before. God hasn't changed. His eyes and his heart are still on the world, and he's stretching us to think and to love and to share and to serve globally as well as locally. And so what I want to do today is just suggest you can talk to God and and verify this in your own heart, but I want to suggest that, that God is making all of this personal to Life Community Church. And I hope He's making it personal to each one of you. You know, if we were to be so bold as to uh, rewrite Isaiah 49 in, in our modern-day context, it, it might read something like this. Dear LCC, I love what you've been doing to share my hope and salvation in central Ohio, but picture this, you being used by God to also bring light and hope and salvation to people not like you, to ends of the earth places, a place like Honduras. Love our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, I... um, I thank you that your heart has never changed. And right now I'm reminded that, that I'm one of those foreigners. I'm one of those Gentiles that you had in mind when you called Abram way thousands of years ago. And you've made a way for me to know your son Jesus. And, and I enjoy a relationship with you today. And that's true of many of us here this morning. Father, I just pray that you would continue to share your heart and your mission your passion with us, and that you would involve us, rather involve giving us the grace to, to live it out, share the gospel right here where we live with our friends and neighbors, or if it's across the seas or um, across the country in a foreign culture, in a, in a foreign language, I pray that uh, you'd not abandon us, but you would involve us in the full mission of God for people like us and also people not like us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.